Let's, let's look at the Gospel of John, the book of John, and we're going to look at chapter 16, so kind of toward the middle of the book of John. John 16, and we're going to look at verse 32, it's a short little section here, and we'll start, uh, we'll start in 31. So, God's word delivered to us by men carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, God's truth is in here, we submit to it, reads this, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You may be seated. This is, this is a, another example of how Jesus says more in a few words than any of us could say in an entire book. If I said I have overcome the world, I would be painfully mistaken. Because I have not, and I cannot. I'm one of 7.4 billion people in the world. There are about two people who die every second in the world. There are about three people who are born every second in the world. We're coming in and out like sand in an hourglass. I'm very small. I don't matter very much. But when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, I have overcome the world. Five words, big five. That says something. That means something. I want you to look closely at the word overcome. And indeed the word over, uh, have before it. Now I'm a grammar nerd, so bear with me for a second. When he says have overcome the world, Jesus is not saying I will overcome the world. I might overcome the world. I hope to overcome the world. I plan to. He says, I have overcome the world, as in it's already complete. It has already been accomplished. The, the verb tense is called the present perfect, the perfect present. How fitting. How fitting that it's called the present or the perfect present tense. Because now we have a perfect present that Jesus delivered to us. Get it? Perfect present. The perfect present tense, I have overcome. It's the most confident way you can say anything. So, for example, this afternoon, the uh, Heat and the Raptors will play basketball, the NBA playoffs, game seven. Uh, if someone from the Heat, Dwayne Wade, were to say to the Raptors, I have won this game, before he steps on the court, that's supreme confidence. That's his teammate saying, bro, no, we're in Toronto. <laughs> we don't have home court advantage. But this is the confidence that Jesus speaks with here. I have overcome the world. And so I have now, myself, every reason to have confidence in Jesus 
because of what he has already done. Even in the sinfulness of the world, and if I understood all of the brokenness of the world at once, it would make me, it, it, it would crush me. We only know a fraction of the world's brokenness. If you knew all of it, how much would you be crushed? But Jesus has still overcome that. Jesus has already accomplished everything that can possibly be accomplished for a human being. He has already secured the greatest possible redemption for human beings if they would only trust in him. So my primary aim in preaching this text is to show us two things. My primary aim in preaching this text is to show us, to convince you, to persuade you of two things. First, Jesus overcomes the world by ruling over it. Second, Jesus overcomes the world by being a refuge from it. My second aim is to call you to that to which Jesus called the disciples, to take heart and to go to him. So my primary aim, my first aim, is to convince you that Jesus overcomes the world in two ways, by ruling over it and by being a refuge from it. I'm trying to explain what he means by overcome. And my second aim is to call you and myself to the very same thing that Jesus called the disciples to do, to take heart and to go to him. So let's set the stage a little bit. Let's get some picture of what's going on here. By the time we arrive at John 16, Jesus is he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. The miracles are all but over, and the cross is imminent. It's right around the corner. Since John 14... If you go back two chapters, all you see is red, if you have a red-letter Bible. Jesus has been offering final words of wisdom to the disciples, a kind of parting word for the ages. And we only have a, probably a fraction of what Jesus actually said. So he's been talking. A lot of speech has been going on here. He's comforting them. That's his purpose. He's, he's comforting them as he prepares to leave them to be with his Father. Now here's why this is so bittersweet. They're just getting to the point where they understand who he is. It's not like they've known his power to its fullest extent through the entire course of their time together, the three years they had together. It's more like they met this mystery man who seemed to have a way about him, and he unfolds more and more of himself as the months and as the years go on. Remember doubting Thomas? So if Thomas doubted Jesus, even after Jesus died and came back, you can bet that some of the other disciples probably had their doubts too. When they saw Jesus doing miracles, they were probably convinced that God was working through Jesus, but they probably were not as convinced that God uh, was Jesus. So, some of them are closer than others in fully understanding who they're dealing with, who has been with them. And 
right as they're about to all get it, that I've been walking with God, not just a godly man, but God as man, he's about to go. He's about to leave. Have you ever had a relationship like that? Where you're just getting to know somebody and you're really starting to appreciate who they are? You're starting to really fall in love with, with the personality they have and then all of a sudden, boom, part ways. Like graduating from high school or something like that. Congrats to all the graduates, by the way. Good job. It's like that friend that you just started to get really close to, and then they're gone, separate ways. That's what's happening here. And so what Jesus is doing is he's comforting them. He's giving them something to hang on to while he goes. It would be a difficult thing to get used to living with the flesh and blood Jesus every day for about three years, only to have him suddenly taken away. So we can understand Jesus' great deliberations to comfort them. Now, upon his departure, we know from the book of Acts and other historical documents, the disciples will be scattered. Their lives are going to change drastically, dramatically. Uh, they'll no longer be a traveling, tight-knit group of servants banded around the 33-year-old God-man. No, they'll suddenly be alone in many ways. Their leader's gone. To add to the lack of physical contact they'll have with Jesus, they'll all be persecuted and most of them killed for their association with him. I mean, look it up. Not only did Jesus leave them, Jesus left them to a horrible rest of their life. And they died horribly, some of them. So instead of waking up every day to Jesus praying, to the sound of Jesus' sweet voice, and the smell of him cooking fish by the lakeside, instead of waking up to that, they're going to wake up to Roman officials out for their blood. But Jesus promises to overcome their tribulations and our tribulations now. He promises to overcome death. He says, listen, you're going to die, but you're not going to be gone. They'll kill you, but they won't hurt you. Because I've got you. Behold, he has overcome the world. The first way he overcomes the world, by ruling over it. By ruling over it. This is the first way he overcomes the world. He rules it. How can Jesus, when he's about to be killed tomorrow, when the disciples are about to be killed over the next few months and years, how can Jesus say, I have overcome the world? Because he rules it. Jesus is ruling the cross that he's on. Who's in more control of the whip on Jesus' back? Jesus or the whipper? Jesus is. He rules over it. And I would argue that there are four dimensions, four aspects to his rulership. There are four ways he rules the world. We know he does, but how? By being fully God. One way he rules the world, by being fully God. Second way, by building his church. Third way, by sustaining his people. And fourth way, by controlling tribulation. So there are more ways that Jesus rules the world, believe me. There are more ways that Jesus overcomes the world, believe me. But these are four that we want to dig into, four that I believe this text implies, that we can draw out from it. He overcomes the world, he rules over the world by being fully God, by building his church in the world, by sustaining his people in the world, and by controlling tribulation. So the first way, he affirms his equality 
with God the Father. That is enough in and of itself to grant confidence. Jesus will die, but Jesus is God. It's over. Jesus will rise again. Jesus is God. What else does he need to do if he is God? But he explains it earlier in the book. He is the very father the disciples' forefathers prayed to, Abraham prayed to, and the father they and their children will pray to for centuries to come. When you pray right now, you are talking to the same person who was cooking fish by the lake. Same. Look a few verses prior in John 16, 15. In John 16, 15, this is Jesus' ultimate power statement. He's not being cocky. He's just telling the truth. What does it say in John 16, 15? All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Woo! No one can say that. Absolutely no one except Jesus Christ can say that all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I, will, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus is saying here is that every time Jesus speaks or does something, it is God speaking or doing something. Do not get it twisted. Jesus was not used by God. Jesus was not merely a servant of God. He was not a prophet of God in the same category as Muhammad or Buddha. Jesus was and is fully God. And so when he prayed to God, when he said, Eloi, Eli, lama sabachthani, right, it is finished, Jesus was praying to his same essence. We would not say that Jesus the Son is Jesus the Father. We're not saying that. That's a distortion. But we're saying that they share an equal essence. They're equal in nature. So when Jesus speaks of going to be with the Father, they're aware that Jesus shares all things with the Father and is equal to him. Knowing this, and based on other hints Jesus has given in his time with them, they have a working concept that Jesus is God, not merely a divinely appointed teacher or miracle worker. Some of them were still in that vein of thought. They still thought he was a miracle worker and a divinely appointed teacher. They didn't quite believe that Jesus could be God. You have to realize how hard it would have been for them to believe that. They're coming from a Judaic background. In this background, the idea that someone is the Messiah is, an, is a revolutionary idea. And so if someone is going to make that claim, they better be an amazing person. Jesus did not fit that bill. The scripture says that Jesus was short, says he was not particularly attractive. Why do you think that Judas had to have someone kiss Jesus? Or why do you think that the officials had to have Judas kiss Jesus? Because they wouldn't have been able to recognize him because he looked like any other guy. Right? Think about it. That's why Judas had to kiss Jesus to distinguish Jesus. And so if you think about all these factors together, 
Jesus was not, you know, particularly good-looking. He, he didn't have that gravitas to him. He was a great teacher, of course, and worked miracles. It was still hard for the disciples to think, could this actually be the one? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be him? And Jesus says, yes, I am God. Now, the Jesus who is going to be with God the Father has ruled the universe from eternity past and will continue to rule the universe into eternity. That means that before the disciples were born, Jesus was holding the universe together. That means that when they, they give him a hug and when he holds their body in his arms while he's giving them a hug, he is literally holding together their molecules from the inside out. He has been doing this because he is God. He has overcome this world for a long time by being in total control over it. What's the most, how else can you overcome something other than being in total control of it? I, I can't even overcome my car sometimes. But if you are in total control over something, have you not overcome it? And so Jesus has, indeed, overcome the world by being in total, exhaustive, complete control over it. Jesus is more in control of this water bottle than I am. The second way Jesus exercises his, his rule, the second way he rules this world, is by building his church. It's by building his church. Do men build the church? No. No. Do people build the church? No. They are in the church. We are part of the church. But it's Jesus who builds it up. Listen, the world has been against Christianity for a long time. If the world wanted Christianity gone, it would be gone. But God builds his church. The rose that grew from concrete, right? That's God's work. So, Jesus' power is still as deep as it was before he came to earth. That power which shaped the very world in which the cross is planted. His, his power will continue without end, guiding and shaping his church and gathering his people from all corners of the world for centuries into the future. Jesus rules over the world, but he doesn't rule over it just for the sake of ruling over it. He rules over the world in order to gather people to himself. That's his primary aim. He holds things together and he created human beings not just to be their helper, that's ludicrous. Jesus created human beings so that he could draw from human life uh, some human beings to be part of his church, to be with him. That's his reason for creating people. And he exercises his rule by doing that. Some people he draws to himself, some people he doesn't. But he's in control of that. He overcomes by bringing life. How about that? He overcomes by bringing life out of death. Who's ever met a person that you have no idea how God changed them, but he did? My dad was like that. My own dad grew up in Atlanta. Uh, it was kind of wishy-washy in his childhood and um, you know, was deep into some very, very dark things. But he heard the gospel, and God saved my dad. 
And my dad got to watch uh, Martin Luther King march through the streets of Atlanta on Peachtree Avenue. He got to see this and experience this after he got saved. And then he met my mom while he was a missionary in Ecuador. And then they had me. And now I get to preach the gospel to you. Let me tell you this, the person who, who preached the gospel to my dad in Atlanta, Georgia, told my dad that my dad was the last person he would have ever thought would become a Christian. He said my dad was, if anyone was a lost hope, it was my dad. But God broke through. God overcame. God brings life from death. Not even the world's best surgeon can bring life from a dead heart. He irresistibly draws people to himself. When he wants you, he will get you. And he overcomes the one force man cannot conquer, the heart. He intimately governs the affairs of our sinful world. Read Ephesians 1.11. He's governing that. He's saving people from a broken world that he is in control of. And thus overcomes it. A king can overcome a nation, but only God can hold a world together and then change a bitter heart within it. This is the deepest way anyone can overcome anything. Who here thinks they're pretty persuasive? They're a good arguer. Good salesperson, right? You cannot change a sinful heart. I don't care how good you are on the phone, how persuasive you are, how clever you are, but God can and God does Save the hearts of broken people. If God's rule over the world isn't enough to convince you that he's overcome it, maybe the fact that he can change a dead heart to make it a living heart, maybe that'll convince you that he has overcome the world and he's still doing it now. This is the deepest way anyone can overcome anything. Man can build skyscrapers, but only Jesus can build his church. He's bringing people to life. And then he's filling them up with truth so they can speak the truth onto more people and it keeps trickling on. You are where you are right now if you are a Christian because along the way someone heard the truth from someone else and they gave you the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. By preachers who were sent. By people who were sent. God did that. God did that. The third way Jesus exercises his rule, his rule over the world, is by sustaining his people. Sustaining his people, taking care of his people, holding his people together. As blood flowed down, Jesus' fingertips on the cross, the disciples were held in the sovereign hands of God. We would do well to not gloss over a statement like this or pass it off as a metaphor. As blood flowed down his fingers, he was holding them in his hands. When they hit him with the nail, <laughs> through the wrist, Jesus was still holding in the palm of his hand the men with the hammer. And he was holding in his hand his mother, who was watching, his family, his disciples, his followers. 
So even through the blood and the tears, the agony on his face, he was the most in control person at that moment. Sustaining his people. Can you imagine what Jesus could have done while that was happening to him? What did the thief say? Get up off the cross. Show that you're the Messiah. Can you imagine what he could have done? Let that alone cause you to worship. You are now, everyone in this room is now, held in the hands of God, sustained, that means held up, in the hands of God as objects of mercy or objects of wrath. I love saying this every time I preach because it's true. There really are only two, only two categories for all human life. We say this all the time. There's, there's winners and losers. There's two types of people in the world. No, no, no. There's only two, literally. There are people who are held in the hands of God as objects of mercy or held in the hands of God as objects of wrath. That's it. Any other category is irrelevant compared to that fact. Everyone in this room is held in God's hand as an object of his mercy, meaning that you have been saved, meaning that you have repented from sin, meaning that you have trusted in Jesus, or you are, outside, you are in his hand uh, trembling as an object of wrath, meaning that God is merciful to not cast you down now. I beg you, figure out, figure out how you are being held in his hand right now. It does not matter. It does not matter. Education, wealth, societal status, nothing matters. Literally, nothing matters except what you think of God and what God thinks of you, I promise. I know that Jesus rules my life because I'm sustained in his hand. Things may not work out the way I want them to, but I'm sustained in his hand right now. John 14 21 and 23, you don't have to read it right now, but it promises that if you are a Christian, the overcoming God will be in you and make a home with you. He wants to save people. He wants to change people's hearts. He wants to bring them from, from death to life. And he wants to make a home with them. You are sustained by him, Christian, who feels like you're not if you feel like you're not, listen. You are already in intimacy with God of the universe. He knows your name. He knows you deeply, more than anyone else. He's wrapped you up in the same power that begot all the other powers and the power that will overcome all things. He knows you and he holds you close, no matter what happens to you. Your bodies may wither in the tribulations to come. Things might not work out, but your soul is secure in the hands of the world's overcomer. Listen, your hell-deserving flesh is protectively nestled in the hands of him who has authority over her gates. God wants to save. He wants to save. He desires to save and sustain the souls of his people to protect them from condemnation. What did we read in Romans 8 this morning? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are safe there. You're sustained there. You will be okay there. 
Do not belittle what is required to sustain your soul. Do not belittle what is required and what power sustains your soul. The fourth way, and perhaps my favorite way, that Jesus exercises his rule, the fourth way he does it is by controlling tribulation. Controlling tribulation. What did he say in the verse? He said, in this world you will have tribulation. What he did not say is in this world you will have tribulation that I will be in total control of. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Tribulation is just another word for difficulty. Trials and tribulation, you know. He's, he's, he controls everything that you are afraid of. He controls the worst possible circumstances in human life. Listen, they knew, the disciples did, that even if they would be killed, they would still be under God's control. Their Savior and friend who overcomes the world rules it and literally holds it together. Colossians 1.17 is a great text to see how God holds things together. He holds the world together while he held their weary souls in his hands. He has overcome the world he has overcome the world in the sense that he is in command of every molecule that reverberates within each sound wave of curses uttered by voices bent against Christ. I'll say that again. He has overcome the world in the sense that he is in command of every molecule that reverberates within each sound wave of curses uttered by voices bent against Christ. When they were cursing him on the cross, he was in control of their voices. As men and governments move in to oppress his disciples and bring about some of the pains Jesus promised, as they come after them, he will control the very neurons and axons and dendrites in the brain that compose their wicked thoughts. He is not like a general controlling things from the outside in. He is God controlling things from the inside out. An all-wise creator who plans out the world's every occurrence, painful or pleasurable, from the atom to the atomic bomb. No mind can comprehend this type of power. And Jesus offers to hold us in his exceedingly great providing hands a promise of security in the perfect sense, the purest sense of the word. We can take heart, go to him. Now the question, I'm sure, arises. If Jesus is in such control, control over the affairs of this world, control over the sinful hearts of men, then why does he not Stop the seemingly endless deluge of evil that befalls human beings. I don't know. Sometimes it's important for people who lead God's people, people who preach the word, to admit to things that we just don't know fully. I do not fully know. No one up here fully knows why it is 
that God allows some of what he does. But my question to you is this. Where else will you go? Even though there is brokenness and hurt in this world, that the scripture explicitly tells us Jesus has authority over and does not seem to always stop, I will ask you, what is the alternative? Where else would we go? It is also important, I think, to note that the vast majority of the evil that happens in this world is due to human choice. That is something to consider. And God does give us a measure of decision-making, of free will, to a certain extent. So that is something to consider. Why are there natural disasters that are outside of human control that God does control? We don't know. But I will still trust him because I don't know where else to go. I, I, I really don't. If I'm not going to trust God, if I'm going to say, well, God, you know, God let my sister die, or God let this happen, or God let that happen, I, it's terrible, but I don't know where else to go, and so I will trust him. So these are four ways that God rules over the world. He overcomes the world by ruling it in these four dimensions. Now, the second way God overcomes the world is by being a refuge from it. So he overcomes the world by ruling it, by exercising authority over it, by building his church, by sustaining his people, by being equal to God, and by controlling tribulation. But he also overcomes the world by being a refuge from it. Remember that Christ is much a refuge from the world and its tribulations, as he is God over the world and its tribulations. As he ordains the complexities of a sinful world, he is a shelter for the weary in the midst of them. So, as he rules the world, he also says, come under my wings, and I will protect you. I will guard your soul and your heart. Scripture overflows with metaphors for God as refuge. You don't have to turn to all of them, but Psalm 32, 7 says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Psalm 17, 8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is your resting place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Psalm 91, 4 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Now, Jesus is a refuge in countless ways. Countless ways. But one way Jesus overcomes the world as refuge is by conquering the world's sin. So, to anyone who says that Jesus has not done a good job in getting rid of the evils that have befallen this world, I would ask, is the cross not enough? 
Though Jesus does not stop every disease from afflicting a human life, and though Jesus does not prevent every earthquake that rattles a country, and though Jesus does not withhold the the evil hand of the ISIS soldier, has Jesus not overcome and healed and accomplished enough by taking away the sins of the world? How are you going to get mad at him for not winning the battle when he already won the war? Listen, I'm 29 years old. If I get to be 85, that means I have 56 years left. Okay? Now, I'm probably going to face some tribulation in this world. Maybe not as, many, as much as most people would. I've had a decently easy life. But I may face tribulation. After I die, after that 56 years between now and 85, if I live that long, how long of an eternity of pleasure will I have with God? Pretty long time, right? Long time. There are people who have been in heaven for thousands of years. Think about it. So, if I get cancer, or if something afflicts my family, or if something befalls me, is it going to hurt? Yeah, it's going to hurt. But I won't question God's goodness when he has already given me a way to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever in the perfect pleasures of his heaven. I won't shrink it down to just my life. Listen, this part of my life is the shortest part of my life. You are currently living the shortest part of your existence. Now, if 85 is the age at which we'll pass away, how many of you in this room are less than 20 years away, 30 years away, 40 years away? It's coming, quick. And then eternity happens. Let's focus more on what God has given you for eternity than on what God has not given you in our finite life. On the converse, to flip the coin over, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, he has taken away hell from you. Do you understand what that means? If you are free of the horrors of hell, then there is very little that you should complain about. There are people in hell right now that wish they heard one more time the call to repent. Let that sink in. Last night I was thinking to myself, how horrifying would it be? How horrifying would it be to stand in front of Jesus and have him say, I never knew you? The pit of your stomach drops when you get your LG&E bill. Can you imagine what the pit of your stomach would do to have the God of the universe look in your eyes and say, I never knew you? But because of Jesus' love for you, if you are a Christian, that will never happen. You will not be in hell. You will not be condemned. So your greatest problem is solved and your greatest joy is secured if you are a Christian. I would say that counts for Jesus overcoming a few things. I would say that's reason enough to trust him even if he takes away auntie. Even if he takes away grandmother. I will still trust him. Yes, I will. Now, Jesus bore 
the wrath against the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2. If Christ can bear the eternal consequences of the world's sin, he has the power to comfort those enduring the effects of the world's sin. I'll say that again. If Christ has the power to bear the eternal consequences of the world's sin, that means God got really mad at him for six hours on that cross because Jesus had the world's sin on him. And God said, I cannot look at that. There was a suffering and anguish that cannot be calculated on Jesus. If he can handle that, then he can comfort you enduring the effects of the world's sin. Now, I worded that very carefully because I did not want to say that Jesus will take away all of the consequences for the world's sin. That Jesus will take away the effects of the world's sin. That Jesus will remove every hurt and sting. He will not, and he obviously does not. But he has the power to comfort to bring supernatural peace in the midst of that storm. He does not always remove it, but he can comfort in the midst of it. In that sense, he is a refuge. Meaning that if I were to find out uh, one of my parents had a disease or something, if, if that were true, then I would go to Jesus to comfort me. And he would comfort me. The Bible promises that he will comfort he will bring a supernatural peace to those who depend on him in faith. And so the hurt might not go away completely, but it will feel different and much better than if I did not trust in Jesus. For the Christian, Jesus overcomes sin and stands as a refuge by offering peace. But he does not offer the type of peace we often expect. Remember, he doesn't often grant freedom from illness or financial instability or broken relationships, although sometimes he does, but not often. Often Jesus offers a peace that surpasses understanding. Read Philippians 4, 6 through 7. The next time you are struggling with anxiety, the next time things are not working out the way you want them to, read Philippians 4, 6 through 7. It's kind of toward the end of the Bible. Jesus promises to offer a peace that surpasses understanding. What is this type of peace that surpasses understanding? It's a, it's a sort of peace that allows us to be supernaturally calm in the midst of something that would drive the average person to ruin. This peace is of a different language, a different flavor from what we're used to. It's a peace that says, God has me and I'm okay. God has won the war. I will fight the battle. God has solved my greatest problem. I will walk through these lesser problems with him together. I know God has my best in mind, even if it doesn't feel like it. That's the type of peace we're talking about, peace that surpasses understanding. And I want you to know I need this peace big time. I'll confess to you right now, in front of all 200 of you, however many there are, I struggle with anxiety big time. I really do. I struggle with worry with doubt, with wondering what's going to happen next. I lead a pretty crazy life as a business owner. You never know what's going to come in. But that only makes it worse for me sometimes. And that comes from pride. It comes from a, a commitment to, um, to having things work exactly as I think they should work. It comes from me needing to be in control. It comes from uh, me not always putting God first. That's something I struggle with. 
It is a sin area. It's not a, it's not a behavioral issue. It's a sin. And I need to change that sin uh, because I want to be used by God more effectively. And if I'm always anxious, always worrying, always trying to control things, always struggling when things don't work out my way, then God can't use me. So what I need, even now, and you can pray for me for this, is for God to give me a peace that surpasses understanding. A peace that completely washes that away. So I'm not focused in tunnel vision on what's going to happen to any... I just need to kind of sit back, and just like Audrey, our daughter, is being held in Mandy's arms right now, that's how I need to be in God's arms. Because I'm more like, God, come on, let's do this, let's do this. Help me, help me, God, come on, come on. Anxious pride. My way, my plan. And I need to rest back. Trust him. Let him be God and take the back seat. I need that peace that surpasses understanding. He's overcome the world. He's overcome my sin. He's overcome my shame. So why am I still anxious, right? Here's a prayer, or not a prayer, but more a statement. This is a statement that we can say together, and I'll post it on the the Forest Facebook page, and this message will be recorded. You can hear it again, uh, so you don't have to write it down. But this is a statement I think we can all agree to. Quote, Jesus has overcome my deepest problem and secured my greatest hope. I will trust in him regardless because he has a plan for my pain. He's got a future for me that eclipses anything I could ever want now. And he is in control of all the brokenness I'm enduring. He's promised me that I'll be with him one day to see him like he is. And then I won't have any more pain. I trust him. He has overcome the world. He is my refuge, my strong tower, my fortress of strength. When your heart can say something like that, with that flavor of childlike faith and hope, you've found your refuge. And you have total freedom to go back to that refuge over and over again whenever you want. Your Savior Jesus has overcome the world's sin. He's overcome the world's ways. He's overcome the world's ideas. He's overcome the world's truths. He's overcome the world's prizes and treasures. He's overcome the world's value system. He's overcome the world's priorities. He's overcome the world's pride. He's overcome the sin that put him on the cross. And he is a refuge from the confusion and the conflict that arises because of the world's rejection of Jesus. He's waiting for his children to see what he has done, to see that he's overcome. And he's waiting for them to go to him. If you're not sure, if you're not sure that any of this means anything, if you are struggling, 
and this just seems like uh, Christian theater, or metaphors, or flowery language, I'm begging you to come with me and to embrace the truth behind what I'm saying. Don't just listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what's behind it. God is real. Otherwise, where would we get our sense of right and wrong from? He is true. Jesus is real. He is currently a flesh and blood human being who is also God, and he can hear our voices even now. History, documents inside and outside of the Bible attest him. He's, he's there. There's no debating this. The question is now, if God is real, if Jesus is real, if the crucifixion did happen, if Jesus did rise again, verifiably documented, and if Jesus is building his church now, and if his word is true, if his Bible is authentic and real and sufficient for us, then you have a choice and I have a choice. To see God as a metaphor or to see God as God and to go to him now. To cast your hope, your cares on him. To say that I want the rest of my life, however many years I have left, to be about you, for you. I want you to overwhelm my heart, God. I want you to take over my priorities, my desires, my dreams and ambitions, and I want you to make them good and healthy and right and pure, and then I want to be with you in heaven. I want this for my life, Lord. I want things to change. I want to be different. I want to think differently. I, I don't want to be held by the weight of sin anymore. I want, I want my desires to change. I need change. I need change now. I do, personally, right now, as a Christian. I need it. I want God to overcome my soul, my heart, my affections, my needs, just like he overcomes the world. Where else am I going to go? Drake? <laughs> he's a good artist, but he's not God. I can't come around him. I need to come around God right now. I need God to overwhelm me, change me, make me different. So I'm asking you in this room, if you are not sure, if you are not sure if you've trusted in Jesus in a genuine way, if you've really taken the time to think about what Jesus did for you on the cross, if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, what it means to repent of sin, what it means to have a transformed life, a transformed heart, there are men and women in this church who will gladly, gladly take you to the scriptures, walk you through the truths of God's word, and show you how you can be saved not just how you can know God or be familiar with God, but how you can be transformed by God. There are men sitting right here who have been transformed. Nate has an amazing story. Maceo has an amazing story. Pastor Nate, Pastor Maceo, uh, our deacons. There are some stories in this room, I'll tell you that much, of people not just coming to know God, but people being transformed by God, where they didn't want stuff that they used to want for a long time. God can and will do that. Our sin condemns us, but God can forgive our sin. God can take away our sin. He can for, uh, forever remove it from us so that when he sees us, he sees us as pure and clean and connected to Jesus. That's why we trust in Christ, so that he will forgive us, not just so that he will be an example for us. I don't want a Jesus peace. I want Jesus' peace. I want him to completely forgive me.
now. If you want this for your life, I'll, I'll be available. These pastors will be available. We want you to understand and know and feel the refreshment of God's love for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to thank you this morning, uh, afternoon now, for overcoming the world as a, in two ways. You, you've overcome it in two ways. You've overcome it as a ruler. You ruled the world by being God. You ruled the world by sustaining your church. You ruled the world by overcoming or controlling uh, tribulation. You, you're a refuge for us, Lord. In the midst of our pain and brokenness, you are a refuge from it. You've given us the resolution. You've given us a future and a hope in heaven with you for those who trust in you, for those who deliver their hearts to you, for those who want to be your children, for those who no longer want to merely be kings or queens of their own lives as if they could uh, and want, to, want you to be the king of their life. So, Lord, we, we, we need you now. I need you so desperately. We need you so desperately, Lord. This world is fading fast. It's changing fast. There are a thousand different ideas and dreams and things happening, voices speaking to us to pull us this way and that way. We need your voice to be louder, Lord. We need your word. It comes from your word. It starts in your word. That's where we rest on your Bible. We rest on this, Lord. Would you bring transformation to the hurting heart, the heart that, that feels distant from you, the heart that feels doubtful about you, the, the, the person who, who feels like you're not real, the person who feels like this has nothing to do with their real life, Lord, show them that it does, that there's nothing more real than heaven or hell, and that you can change a heart. God, convince the person who's not convinced this morning. Thank you for the listeners of your word and for giving us the opportunity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.